Hello, this is Jeff Guy. This is the podcast Surgery ICU Rounds. I am a professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. The topic that I'd like to discuss today is a uh, paper that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine back on January 10th. And we have alluded to it previously um, in one of our talks um, podcasts on sepsis, and that's what's known as the Corticus trial. The title of the paper is Hydrocortisone Therapy for Patients with Septic Shock, and it's by Sprung and colleagues, and you can find it in the January 10th um, edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. I remember a um, professor of mine in the past saying that in medicine, the questions remain the same, it's only the answers that change, and, and I find that true each and every day that a lot of the questions that we think we have answered in regards to the care of patients or the care of critically ill patients continues to change. Um, I graduated medical school in 1991, which doesn't seem like a long time ago, but now it's been almost 17 years. Um, and when I was in medical school, we thought we pretty much knew how to fluid resuscitate a patient. We thought we knew um, how to manage a patient from a cardiovascular standpoint with things like pulmonary artery catheters. We thought we knew how to ventilate somebody in ARDS by using high peak constroy pressures and high levels of PEEP. And in that brief period of time, we've seen dramatic changes in the way we manage just those few things. And I think the open mind um, shows every day in critical care that there is changes in, in the paradigms in which we manage patients uh, almost on a, a daily basis. Hydrocortisone or the use of steroids for sepsis is something that's been long debated uh, and with few answers. Um, and this paper uh, adds another vital piece of information as to what is the value for the use of steroids in the septic patient. The authors start out their paper uh, discussing the problem of sepsis, and we, I think we've articulated this in the podcast Sepsis One Part Sepsis Part One and Sepsis Part Two. But sepsis, they remind us, is a major cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide, um, occurring in about two to twenty percent of their inpatients as they report, uh, with a death rate of thirty-three to sixty-one percent. As we've said, the use of steroids has been debated uh, for decades. They outline that an uh, article by Schumer and colleagues in Annals of Surgery in 1996 showed that after a short course of high-dose corticosteroids, um, uh, that um, patients seemed to have a better outcome, that steroids really became an accepted theory. Uh, however, papers subsequent to that did not confirm a survival benefit with the use of steroids in septic patients. And in fact, in those papers, there appeared to be an increased rate of infection-related mortality. On the contrary, there have been other papers that have used lower dose doses of hydrocortisone at the doses of, say, 200 to 300 milligrams per day and for longer durations. And in those studies, uh, as outlined in, in this original paper, they have showed an early reversal of the shock phase and even uh, improved survival. Sprung and colleagues then go on in their introduction and comment on about some of the meta-analysis that have been done looking at the issues of steroids and sepsis. And um, many of those uh, meta-analysis reviews and guidelines have advocated the use of low-dose hydrocortisone in patients with septic shock. 
Um, they comment, Sprung and colleagues comment that the recommendations were based primarily on a study of patients with septic shock who remained hypotensive after at least one hour of resuscitation with fluids and vasopressors. And we've continued to see that, that uh, patients who are septic, and despite our resuscitative efforts, the patients are failing to respond. And I don't know that that accurately reflects everyone that we take care of. Perhaps that more accurately uh, defines the sickest of the sick septic patients, but for not perhaps, but not the majority of patients that we would define septic. And the paper that they're referring to specifically is the paper by Anon and colleagues in the Journal of the American Medical Association 2002. And we've talked about this, and this was the use of low-dose steroids and fluoronef in patients who were septic shock and seemed to fail um, uh, resuscitative efforts and have failed a cortisone stimulation test. Now this is a, a fine point which will be brought up different because this, the Anon paper is different than the Corticus paper. The, the, the types of patients they enrolled um, and so they're not identical studies. The Cortica study was different, and the authors state, and, and this is taking it right out of the paper, the Cortica study evaluated the efficacy and safety of low-dose hydrocortisone therapy in a broad population of patients with septic shock, and, and I believe their population in the Cortica study is much broader and perhaps more applicable to the kind of patients we see daily in intensive care units than the Anon study. And, and it's going back to quoting the paper, in particular patients who had a response to corticotropin tests in whom a benefit was unproven. So how was the Corticus style done, uh, trial done? It was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. They enrolled, obviously, patients who were uh, 18 years of age. Uh, you were included uh, in the trial if you had clinical evidence of infection. You had a, a systemic inflammatory response um, to that infection. And if you don't know what a systemic inflammatory response uh, is, uh, again, I would refer you to the sepsis podcast. And the onset of shock occurred within... Uh, the previous 72 hours uh, prior to the uh, enrollment, and they they defined shock as somebody who had a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, despite um, adequate fluid replacement and vasopressors for at least one hour, um, and evidence of hypoperfusion and organ dysfunction attributed to the uh, sepsis. Exclusion criteria are always important, and uh, uh, people were excluded. Anybody uh, who had a poor prognosis, a life expectancy of less than 24 hours. Hours. Patients who were uh, uh, immunosuppressed uh, and patients who were treated with uh, corticosteroids in a long-term uh, aspect for the six months previous uh, to the enrollment or short-term corticosteroids within four weeks prior to this uh, episode of sepsis. If you read the paper, you'll get into uh, more definitions and more particulars about the randomizations and data collection. But what were the endpoints? What were the outcome variables that were measured? Well, the principal, the primary endpoint was the rate of death at 28 days in patients who did not have a response to corticotropin. Okay, so stated another way, how many patients who failed to have a response to an ACTH stimulation test died at 28 days. Another endpoint were the rates of death at 28 days in patients who had a response to corticotropin. Um, and in all patients, um, the rates of death in the ICU and the rates of death in the hospital, the rates of death at one year following enrollment in the study, and the uh, reversal of organ failure, including shock, as well as the duration of the ICU and the hospital stay. But the principal ones are how many patients who failed their ACTH stimulation test died compared to those who passed their ACTH stimulation test. How many of those died?
Well, what were the results? Of the 499 patients that were in the study, 233, or 46.7% of the patients, did not have a response to corticotropin. And roughly 254, excuse me, and 254 patients, or 50.9%, did have a response to corticotropin. And they have the breakouts in the paper of how many were randomized to receive steroids and how many were randomized to receive the placebo. And they were both the same. So roughly 50% of the patients uh, uh, did not have a response, 46.7%, and 50.9% did have a response to corticotropin. You put those numbers together, you know, 46.7 plus 50.9, that does not add up to 100%. Um, uh, there were uh, eight patients for which the response was unknown. And the authors break down some more details of, of how many people um, withdrew and, you know, how many patients received Atomidate, which is a induction agent for intubation and anesthesia, which has been known to result in some adrenal insufficiency. So let's look at those primary endpoints that we talked about earlier, basically the death rate. Uh, in the mortality group, the key point here was there was no difference, no significant difference between the two study groups in the primary outcome, that is the, the rate of death at 28 days among the patients who did not have a response to corticotropin. There were 49 deaths in the 125 patients in the hydrocortisone group, which is roughly 39.2%, and 39 deaths in the 108 patients in the placebo group, which is 36.1%. There was no significant difference in the rate of death at 28 days in patients who had a response to corticotropin. The uh, rate of death um, in the patients in the hydrocortisone group was 28.8%, and the rate of death in um, the placebo group was 28.7%. There were no differences in the death rate, uh, the mortality rate, between the study groups or between the corticotropin subgroups at any other point in time. And when we look at the reversal of shock, the duration of time until reversal of shock was significantly shorter among the patients who were receiving hydrocortisone for all groups. And that was at the level of significance of P is less than 0.001. And for those who had a response to corticotropin, and, um, as well as for those who did not have a response to corticotropin. The median time uh, until reversal of shock was shorter in the hydrocortisone group than in the placebo group, so, but it was not instantaneous by any stretch of the imagination. Those patients who were in the hydrocortisone group, their duration of shock reversal was 3.3 days versus 5.8 days in the placebo group. So let's pull it all together and, and what does it all mean? In the corticus trial, in this particular study, the use of low-dose hydrocortisone had no significant effect on the rate of death in the patients with septic shock at 28 days. Now, I'm reading right from the paper. It says, regardless of the patient's adrenal responsiveness to corticotropin. So what does that mean? That means if a patient is, by definition, having septic or septic shock, whether you do a cortisone stimulation test or don't do a cortisone stimulation test, and whether you give them uh, hydrocortisone or not, it's not going to affect whether that patient lives or dies based on a 28-day mortality. Does giving steroids make it more likely that you're going to get a patient out of shock? And the answer to that is no. Uh, again, going back to the paper, the proportion of patients in whom reversal of shock was achieved was similar in the two groups. So the next question is, does giving steroids get my patient out of shock more quickly? And the answer to that, based on this, is it, it does. The, the goal of reversal of shock was achieved earlier in patients who received hydrocortisone. 
Now the authors then go back and they compare this back to the uh, original uh, paper that really started a lot of this interest, and that's the, the Anon study uh, that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association that we've already referenced. In that particular study, there was both a improved survival and a reversal of a shock in patients who had no response to corticotropin and received both hydrocortisone and the fluoronef. Now there are, you know, clearly differences between these two studies, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one study is wrong and the other study is right. They're actually different studies, um, as we've outlined in one of our other podcasts that the the types of the patients that were included in these two um, studies were different. Uh, in the Anon study, it was basically patients who failed to respond to resuscitative efforts after an hour uh, of, of, of being in shock. And it means a patient's got a systolic blood pressure of 90, and despite giving them aggressive uh, fluid resuscitation, despite, despite using vasopressors such as norepinephrine um, or dopamine or whatever that they were using, the patients remained hypotensive. Now, that is a, a very sick patient population. And in the Anon study, it was clearly evident that it was sick sicker because if you looked at their 28-day mortality in the Anon study, in the placebo group, 61% of the patients died. Now, in the current study we're talking about, the study by Sprung and, and colleagues, um, only 32% of the patients uh, died. And the reason why um, only 32% of the patients died was that they had probably a, a more um, I would say less rigid inclusion criteria, but probably a more appropriate inclusion criteria because we take care of a lot of patients who are septic and have, um, are, but are not the type that are failed to resuscitate. When I think of all the patients that I see in our intensive care unit, or intensive care units, I'm not a big fan of steroids personally, but patients who are put on that steroid pathway, they're not the patients that are in the non study. They're not those patients uh, who came into the ICU and their pressure was 70 for an hour despite throwing fluids and vasopressors at them. They're patients who are kind of that septoid appearance or they, they true ha truly have a bacteremia and some associated organ dysfunction, but they're not on one or two vasopressors and failing to respond. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, and, and that would certainly explain the differences in the mortality. The second um, um, point of difference is that in the Anon study, the patients had to fulfill those criteria of sepsis uh, within eight hours. Um, in this current paper we're talking about, it was a 72-hour window uh, of inclusion. So a lot of these patients may have been on the trajectory of getting better. Um, the third element of difference between the two studies is that in the Anon study, they actually gave, um, I know it drives people crazy when I say fluoronef, but they also gave the mineral corticoid uh, fluidocortisone. And, and in this study, um, the New England Journal of Medicine study, the, the, the Sprung study, um, fluidocortisone was not given. Uh, and the reason why is that, that the dose of 200 milligrams hydrocortisone should have adequate mineral corticoid activity, and these current authors didn't feel that the addition of fluidocortisone or fluoronef uh, provided any additional assistance uh, to the patient. Now there were some differences uh, in these uh, patients, and, and particularly when you look at the patients who were difficult to resuscitate or who persisted in shock, um, and 
Um, if you look at patients who had a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 at one day after inclusion, despite fluid and, and vasopressor resuscitation, they had a death rate of 56% in the placebo group and an absolute reduction in mortality about 11.2% in the hydrocortisone group. And this this mimics a lot of, of the results that were also found in, in the Anon study. As we've already mentioned uh, when we talked about the results is that though the addition of hydrocortisone in this particular paper did not improve 28 more 28 day mortality either in the uh, ACTH responders and non-responders those patients who received hydrocortisone did have a decrease in time of reversal of, sh of, of shock in those patients who did receive the steroids hydrocortisone. It was interesting that and the authors actually comment on this is that the um, the rate of reversal of, of shock was actually greater in those patients who did have a response to corticotropin, but it, as we've said, it was not associated with a reduction in the mortality rate. It was not associated with a reduction of ICU stay or even hospital stay. Uh, the authors go on to conclude that you know what we're seeing here may not be a dysfunction of the adrenal axis per se, but it could be uh, resulting uh, in mechanisms of interaction with vascular hyporeactivity or abrogation of inflammatory cascades. Additional differences in the two studies could also be related to the duration of antibiotic therapy. In the non study, they uh, basically uh, stop the steroids abruptly after seven days of therapy whereas in the current study we're talking about uh, from Sprung and colleagues they basically tapered the steroids over a period from day five to day eleven uh, and uh, the authors explain that tapering was used because of the increased pro-inflammatory pro mediators and uh, hemodynamic deterioration that one sees uh, following abrupt sensation a cessation of uh, the use of corticosteroids. So a again, an another difference between the two studies. The authors of the Sprung study also point out that in their uh, steroid group that there was an increased rate of superinfection including new episodes of sepsis or septic shock where this is uh, different than what's been report previously reported in the literature. And what Sprung and colleagues is, is explaining here certainly makes sense. We know that steroids uh, are immunosuppressants and um, certainly would make sense to see an increased rate of superinfection. But that is a variance from what has been previously been reported. Other drawbacks of the use of steroids have were also mentioned, in including um, neuromuscular weakness. This is a, a um, um, very problematic uh, um, issue in intensive care units a uh, prolonged neuromuscular weakness in patients who have received steroids. Just as, as kind of an aside, this is also seen in patients given uh, uh, certain paralytics who uh, have a steroid nucleus that you can see prolonged uh, muscle weakness uh, following discontinuation of not only the steroid drugs but those uh, medications such as certain uh, paralytic agents that are, are built on a steroid nucleus. So in summary, this paper by Sprung and colleague, which is known as the Corticus trial, is an important contribution to the literature and is certainly going to be highly quoted. I think that you should be familiar with both uh, the findings of this particular study, its reported uh, strengths and weaknesses as defined by Sprung and colleagues, uh, as well as its difference uh, in both its uh, uh, patient population 
and uh, differences in findings compared particularly to the Anon group. Uh, and, and the authors really conclude the paper by pointing out that the prognostic significance of a failure of a patient to uh, stimulate following a cortisone stimulation test in sepsis has been uh, well described as a, a potentially prognostic indicator. However, in the Corticus trial, there was really not a significant difference in the 28-day mortality uh, for those patients who did not have a response to ACTH versus the responders. Those who uh, did not have a response had a 28-day mortality of 38% versus those who did have a response of 29%. Um, there is clearly a difference between those two numbers, but there was no statistical significance in in this uh, study. The other point that the authors point out uh, is uh, the use of um, uh, measurement of cortisol stimulated and, and otherwise has really been a, a poor test, uh, mostly due to issues of, of protein binding, that there's a poor relationship between the total cortisol and free cortisol levels. And, and this gets down to the issues of when we talk about somebody who has a total calcium level that's low, and then we all learn in medical school, well, you have to correct it for the albumin uh, for every one gram uh, deciliter decrease in the uh, uh, albumin, we have a 0 0.8 um, uh, correction level in the uh, uh, ionized calcium. Well, uh, there is a free cortisol level and a total cortisol level, and they're not the same, and, and they're, they don't always relate to each other well. Other issues that may affect the uh, uh, cortisol levels are the dose of the ACTH, the timing, and as well as the type of corticotropin that is administered. Nonetheless, uh, this is a, like I said, this is a, a important study. Uh, it is limited in its power. There were only 500 patients uh, enrolled, and, and the uh, uh, authors initially wanted to enroll 800 patients, and they limited it at 500 due to a combination of slow recruitment um, uh, and in getting the 800 patients as well as real logistical issues of uh, timing of the funding as well as the uh, expiration of, of the trial drugs being evaluated. The, the pluses are that this was a multi-institutional, multinational study involving 52 intensive care units in nine countries. What are the take-home points? Well, the take-home points are that hydrocortisone did not decrease the mortality uh, in a general population of patients with septic shock. Um, um, at an evaluation of a 28-day mortality. It did, however, increase the rate of reversal of shock. Um, patients who received steroids did see a overall improvement in their shock state, and we stated those numbers above. We're not talking about something of 15 or 20 minutes, but we're talking about three days versus five days. Based on the findings of this paper, and I'm going to quote the authors here, but they say on the basis of these findings, hydrocortisone cannot be recommended as a general adjunctive therapy for septic shock, uh, vasopressor response, nor can corticotropin testing be recommended to determine which patients should receive hydrocortisone therapy. They go on to say that hydrocortisone therapy may have a role among patients who are treated early after the onset of septic shock who remain hypotensive despite the administration of high-dose vasopressors or patients who are considered vasopressor unresponsive. So there you have it. That's the um, um, 
review of the uh, Sprung and uh, colleagues, their paper uh, entitled Hydrocortisone Therapy for Patients with Septic Shock. You can find the full paper in the New England Journal of Medicine dated January 10, 2008. My name is Jeff Guy. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery ICU Rounds. Uh, this is found on the um, blog site uh, surgeryicrounds.com, um, and my home website is burndoc.com. Thank you for listening.